Duke Energy says the best way to avoid billing surprises is to track your use. Duke Energy customers who have a smart meter can sign up for a usage alert. Similar to data alerts you get from your cell phone company, a budget can be set for the amount of your monthly energy bill and receive notices when you're approaching your limit. Residential customer service specialists are available Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. by calling 1-800-521-2232. Duke Energy presents Connecting Counties with your host Gus Piercy. A look at the economical, social, and educational decisions being made in Hendricks and surrounding counties and how they affect one another. And now your host, Gus Piercy. Welcome to Connecting Counties. I'm Gus Piercy. Our uh, subject today is re-entry programs uh, for prisoners um, for incarcerated uh, our guests today are Alexis Deed and Andrew Falk. Alexis is the Executive Director of Programs and Reentry Readiness for the Indiana Department of Correction. Uh, she's uh, been serving as the Executive Director of Reentry and Medicaid and, um, and in her capacity as the Executive Director of Programs and Reentry Readiness. Alexis is responsible for the oversight of case management programming adult education, vocational training, the Hoosier Initiative for Reentry or Hire program, and the department's pre-release course. She began her career with INDOC at, uh, in 2007, or IDOC, uh, at the Plainfield Correctional Facility as a substance abuse counselor. She has served as a reentry specialist, reentry addiction services monitor, and director of case management before her promotion to executive director. Also with us is Andrew Falk, the executive director for a re-entry program called Constructing Our Future. Uh, Andrew is a senior fellow with the Sagamore Institute with a research focus on criminal justice reform and international environmental and energy law. He is actively involved in analyzing the impact of Indiana's criminal code revisions and reforms and drafting reports summarizing this research. He also researches and writes regularly on environmental and energy issues, such as the promise of solar energy in Africa and the benefits of secure property rights to protect the environment. Before joining the Sagamore Institute, Andrew practiced business and environmental law with the Indianapolis firm of Kroger, Gardas, and Regas. He left the firm to join the Indiana Office of Attorney General and practiced in criminal appeals, arguing multiple cases before the Indiana Court of Appeals, and the Indiana Supreme Court. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for being here today. We're talking about reentry, and I guess um, let's start with a definition of what reentry is. Let's start with that, Alexis. Sure. So for Indiana DOC reentry to us um, and all the areas that you discussed from what I have purview over is about ensuring that we're preparing the offender population um, based on their criminogenic needs and concern areas through programming, um, pro-social activities, um, and those types of opportunities while they're incarcerated to prepare them for a successful reentry with the hope, of course, of remaining long-term in society and not returning to our walls. 
which returning to your walls mm-hmm. is technically called recidivism. Correct. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know if people understand. I think they know people return to jail or they are lifelong um, offenders. What is uh, what is some statistics for recidivism? Sure. So for Indiana DOC, our definition of recidivism is um, returning to incarceration within three years of their release from a state correctional institution. And um, in Indiana, we're actually extremely pleased because we have the lowest recidivism rates that we've had in quite some time. Um, Since it is a three-year rate, the most recent was for 2018. And that would include those who have been released from 2015 and who have remained out. And that recidivism number for us right now is 33.7%. 33.7 is the people that return. Correct. Okay. And that's the lowest it's been? That's the lowest it's been in quite some time. What do you attribute that reduction? I mean, where has it been? Do you know? Um, You know, we've definitely... I mean, is that a reduction of 20%, 15%? Do you know? Not offhand. I okay. couldn't give you an actual number. Um, You know, we release anywhere over the past few years. We've had obviously some criminal justice reform here in Indiana. Mm -hmm. So that's some changes to our laws um, in the way that we incarcerate. But, you know, we release anywhere from 12,000 to 14,000. So whatever, 33.7% of that is. No math. You would have had to have the data and math guy here. No math. (laughs) So, okay. But, okay. So talk to me about release because there's... um, You've served your time, right? Sure. And then there's parole, mm-hmm. and that means you're still under some, you're still under some, I don't know what you call it, still supervision. under supervision. Yep. Yeah. Does that include parole as well? It does. So the Indiana Department of Correction is responsible for parole, the right. parole division. That's an arm of a, um, our agency, and roughly half the people that we release roughly go out on parole. Um, the other half are probation with a small percentage of those folks being discharged with no supervision whatsoever. Um, and the pro- probation is ultimately run by each of the 92 counties. So what's important about reentry programs? So the most important thing about reentry programs is, you know, as we've learned over the years in corrections, if we just bring people in and incarcerate them and we don't address any of the issues that resulted in that incarceration, um, then ultimately we're asking them to make changes to themselves with no intervention and return to society prepared to reenter it in a way where they'll be successful. Um, And I think the research has definitely shown that that practice doesn't work. So over the course of developing corrections and becoming more reentry minded, um, we started not only assessing the types of issues that occur, perhaps that's, you know, a cognition issue, maybe that's an addiction issue, maybe it's a pro-social you know, if you grow up in and around criminal lifestyle, all your friends, your family, etc., are involved in that lifestyle. And that's the way that you know. That's the way that you um, think. That's the role models that you have. And we don't ever do anything to talk about what we can do to make long-term changes to mm-hmm. those people, places, and things, to the right. way that you approach situations, to the way that you think about situations and act, um, then we can't really expect for folks to find success when they get out because that's something that takes practice, takes awareness. Um, and so we've really focused in on key indicators of what what results in recidivism. That can be folks who have addiction issues. That can be lack of employment skills. That can be lack of education. Um, or that could just simply be some of those cognitive 
issues that we need to address to put you in a better way of thinking and ultimately change that thinking so that you approach things in a more pro-social way. Is, uh, mental health is a, is a huge issue in the prisons, is that correct? I think mental health is a huge issue across the country, and we definitely have people within our walls who have mental health issues um, that require attention, um, and some of those are directly tied to you know, their behaviors that have resulted in incarceration. Right. So, so what is the, what do you think is the biggest help people need when they get out? Is it to get a job or is it to get addictions help, which I'm assuming there's some addictions help in prison. Absolutely. Um, so when they get out and I'm, I'm assuming that the biggest barrier to reentry which I'm assuming reentry is successful, right? If 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 they, we have these programs. If they are reentered, mm-hmm. they're successful, right? That's if our they goal. Can do they? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is it jobs? It can be. It depends on the person. Jobs is a huge one. Um, of the folks that return to us, many of them are unemployed at the time of their arrest, and so that is definitely a contributor. Um, you know, they need to find financial stability. They need to find that. Uh, routine to participate in. It's a little different for each person. What's kind of the top concern? You know, it's hard to really prioritize and say for everyone it's this or that, Um, but it's employment, it's addiction. Obviously, if we see people returning to using and not maintaining that sobriety, then ultimately, in most cases, they can return to that criminal behavior or at least that criminal uh, peer group or that they used to associate with that obviously puts them in situations that aren't healthy and you know, obviously purchasing uh, drugs is already a violation of the law. So simply returning to using returns them to that cycle of a life of crime and what that looks like for each person is a little bit Well, that's kind of an environmental thing too, right? If you go back to the same environment, chances are you're going to do the same thing that you were doing before. Is the majority of the programs about getting jobs though? We do have a, a large focus on not so much getting jobs, but making people job ready. So we have over the last year and a half, um, through the support of the current administration that it's one of the top pillars mm-hmm. for the governor for Governor Holcomb sure. um, to have that skilled and ready workforce. We have definitely made some great strides in not only the number of vocational training opportunities that exist, but also the types of national certifications that the population earns. So the hope is that in earning that certification and showing that you are proficient in that skill, um, especially in the current job market, that that will offset some issues that folks have had with hiring felons. It's definitely a time for second chances. We're seeing a lot more people getting opportunities that maybe when the market was a little different, they wouldn't. Um, And so training our population in the the industries that Indiana specifically needs more workers in, carpentry, manufacturing, logistics, um, opportunities like that, welding, really best prepares them for the jobs that are going to be available when they get out. We need a lot of fast food workers. Are we not? Are we not? giving fast food a a turn? Why? Well, we're looking for jobs that are going to ensure that our population is able to make a livable wage. That's not to say that, you know, many of our population doesn't work in the hospitality or food industry, but what we're targeting (laughs) is those jobs that are going to give them that livable wage where um, the goal is ultimately to get them into career and not having to live that paycheck to paycheck life. Um, And looking at things like welding, like manufacturing, um, like being a CNC trained um, worker are those 
those more high hourly wage jobs that's going to give them ultimately more financial stability and better chances for success. Uh, we stopped funding college in prison a few years ago, probably eight years ago now, where we where Indiana was one of the last ones in the mm -hmm. country to do this. So I'm not being negative. I'm just saying that the legislature has stopped funding college programs in school in prisons. They did uh, discontinue eligibility for the incarcerated population, but um, in recent weeks, there's been bipartisan support for reintroducing Pell Grants for the incarcerated population. Indiana is an experimental Pell Grant awardee. We do have one institution um, that through that Pell Pilot is currently offering post-secondary education. Um, and then we also have a partnership through the Bard Prison Initiative <coughs> where we are uh, able to offer post-secondary education in one of our women's facilities. And so that has started recently within 2019. But um, for the first time, we are seeing a bipartisan support at the federal level for considering the return of Pell Grants to the offender population. Let's talk to Andrew about constructing our future because that is a re-entry program. And uh, Andrew, you probably have a better elevator speech on it than I do. So <laughs> can you tell me about it? Constructing Our Future is a program that was designed by women in the Indiana Women's Prison. Um, and uh, one of the women heard then-candidate Mayor Hogsett talking about um, all the abandoned houses in Indianapolis. Um, and she had a, a moment of inspiration, <clears throat> excuse me, um, where... She had she had um, spent quite a bit, quite a few years in the Department of Correction and had seen women leave um, the prison and then return um, in part because of the challenges of finding secure housing, and she thought, what would it be like if we could develop a plan where um, incarcerated women could receive training in construction and remodeling um, and be, then began working on restoring formerly abandoned houses which they could then earn through their sweat equity um, so that was that was the the original huh. vision of constructing a future that women could earn a place to live through their sweat equity pick up job skills along the way um, that would make them better suited for um, finding jobs in construction um, earn a earn a house of their own um, probably with a small mortgage and and help reduce urban blight at the same time. So that work began. The, there was a public policy class mm -hmm. in Indiana Women's Prison um, that Vanessa took this idea to, and they researched it and came up with a proposal. Um, and then for the last three years, we've been working to find partners and um, began putting this into practice. Now, the uh, public policy class, they actually got before the legislature, right, and asked for support? That's right. Um, so Vanessa and another of the women inside um, testified before interim commission in late 2015, I believe. Um, and the, the interim com committee loved the idea, um, endorsed it, um, didn't fund it, um, but liked the idea. And then in early um, 2017, um, the General Assembly passed a resolution um, honoring the women for their work and coming up with this idea. Um, so that was a, a bit of a um, boost. Yes, I did. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, that, uh, 
Now, let's say that there are a lot of reentry programs like Constructing Our Future. Constructing Our Future happens to target uh, the Indiana women's prison. For now, yes. Um, so, I mean, you look it up on Google and there are like 20 around the state easily and not all of them through the Department of Correction. How important is it to have the community help with this and... Um, we'll start with that. Sure. So it's exceptionally important for a number of reasons. First of all, having that partnership allows us to provide the population as they release those resources that they're going to need when they get out. Um, having a support system at release is extremely important. And unfortunately, some of our population just doesn't have that support that you or I might have from family or friends. Um, so they're going to have to build that support in other areas. And so having those community partnerships gives us someone that we can um, provide to them as a support once they get out through services, um, through pro-social opportunities for them to meet other people who perhaps have struggled with a release recently who kind of know what the challenges are that they're about to come up against. Um, another reason it's so important is because ultimately these are the communities that these folks are returning back to. They're going to be um, attending our schools. They're going to be working next to us. Their kids are going to be going to school with our kids. Um, you know, it's important to view this incarceration issue as a, as a community issue and not just as a Department of Correction issue because... They are returning to us. But that's tough, right? It is I mean, tough. I, I mean, you, you said the word felon, sure. and that's what everybody thinks, right? Correct. They Once they make this mistake, they are... So has that changed over the years? Or, I mean, okay, I think part of it has changed because of the need for employees Okay. with unemployment. Mm -hmm. I think that changes people's, business people's mindset. Plus also... Um, I would assume that there's a significant amount of population that gets out that are in because of an opioid uh, addiction. And that's a, almost a different category of felon. You know, it's not like it could be violent, but it's it's almost like the devil made me do it kind of <laughs> thing, if you know what I mean. T tell me where I'm wrong on that and what I'm and if my thinking is right or and how we can move forward with those kinds of ideas and changing the um, the interpretation of a felon? So there's definitely still a stigma, but I do believe that it has lessened over the years. I think we've made significant progress, not just here in Indiana, but across the nation. Uh, to your point about the employment piece, absolutely. Uh, with the market the way that it is, folks are beginning to acknowledge that this is an untapped market, a market that maybe before um, we could turn our backs on, but now we're seeing that not only are they un an untapped market, but they're a qualified market. These are folks that we're training up um, to work alongside people who haven't spent time, but who still have the same skill set and who've had the same training and who've passed the same certifications, making them qualified for the job. In regard to the um, opioid epidemic, you are correct. We have definitely seen folks whose incarceration is directly tied to their addiction. Um, so whether people look at that differently, you know, I'm sure you could make a case for it. But I think that overall, we need... I mean, it's like a lot of these people who were just fine, and then they got addicted. And then they started doing crazy things because they were addicted and they had to get their next fit. Am I wrong about that? There are some people whose entire criminal history is tied directly to their use. Yes. I would think that's a growing population. 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. We definitely have people who, who have taken that route to crime as opposed to some other people that um, maybe the, their criminal activity started much younger, much earlier, um, and has just continued to build upon itself over the years. But we definitely have some people whose incarcerate is directly tied to their drug use, Andrew, you, you spent a good time of your career putting a lot of these people back in jail. Is that correct? Uh, to be more precise, I spent um, four years helping to keep them there. Okay. Um, Keeping I, them what, I did was, what I did was appeals for okay. the Attorney General, so it was more of a seeking to affirm what the trial court had done. It's uh, a lot different than what you're doing now. How has your uh, philosophy it's, it's, changed on that? It's, it's very different from what I'm doing now. Um, the shorthand for it when I was doing that was I, I told my sons my job is keep the bad guys in jail. Um, now I see my job as helping people change their lives and find opportunities such that they can get out and stay out. Um, I'm not, I I think what has changed is that in my work, essentially as an appellate prosecutor, um, I had very little contact with the men and women that I was, um, opposite the V from, um, in the, in the the state versus Doe, um, setting. And what is, what the biggest thing I've changed, what the biggest thing that's changed is as I've spent, um, countless hours sitting across the table or, or, or standing in classrooms with incarcerated individuals, I've come to see their humanity in a way that I never realized before. Um, for years, I drove past the Indiana Women's Prison with, with barely even a thought that it was there, much less any, any thought as to why they were there, how, why they're, what, you know, what led to it, what their family situation was. And now I can't drive by it without thinking about the women that I know and the heartbreak that many of them have and the, the challenges their families face without them. Um, and to see them as people, as mothers and sisters mm-hmm. and daughters, I think about it in a way that I never, I never thought about it. Um, or I thought about it much less. I think you can't do that work for long without beginning to think, you know, what is the, what is the wisdom of this practice? What is the, Oh yeah. Well, um, you know, is this the best thing that we can be doing for someone who has committed X offense? And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying it's all wrong, but I'm a bit of a criminal justice reformer. So, you know, I'm thinking about things like this, you know, how can we, how can we do better? Um, how can we be more humane perhaps, or are there better, are there better ways to handle, um, offenses than what we're doing? And so, you know, but a lot of people view being put in prison as a punishment, right? I mean, that's current. Yeah, that's the popular I mean, perception and, for and sure. And I read on your website that you know the Indiana Constitution says it's more about uh, reform and rehabilitation than it is about vindictive justice. Yeah, yeah, vindictive justice. So. So we need more of these programs. We need more help with these programs, Alexis. We always need more help. We we always need more people. People like Andrew and you know even him, you know, kind of talking about his change in perspective shows that there's been change. Andrew's story is just one story of many people who um, have maybe started to think about the incarcerated population a little differently. Maybe started to think about that humanity piece. And so we always need more partners because as we're 
you know, returning these folks to our communities. They need more support. They need more services. They need more people who are willing to accept that they've already served their time. So this is no longer the time of judgment and punishment, but is instead the time of support and help um, to give them that that push, that welcome back into their community, that understanding that while perhaps they've made mistake or mistakes, that they're not forever forgotten and discounted in our communities. I'm sure they feel that way. I'm sure they have felt that way in the past. People can be very verbal about their thoughts about people who have been incarcerated, and they they can be very verbal about them both to their face and to others. And so, you know, I, I once heard one of our um, releasing offenders speak about how every relationship is, you know, another relationship that can be changed in the moment that that person finds out that they've ever spent time so there's the um oh yeah so hi yeah. how are you mm-hmm. and then all of yeah. a sudden you find out wait you you spent time in jail and prison mm-hmm. yeah wow. and and so every relationship that they have can go through that transition of having been accepted and then suddenly not been accepted and you know what that must feel like over and over and over again you know, how you kind of keep yourself positive and on the right path when there's plenty of people who are not supportive and who don't want to welcome you back and want to ostracize you, that can just add to the challenges and barriers that already exist. Those are the emotional challenges that exist for them in addition to, you know, the fact that they're trying to maybe maintain sobriety, the fact they're trying to find employment, the fact they're trying to reintegrate in their family and their children's lives. Um, Those are additional things that sometimes don't get talked about as much. So what would be the biggest help for you in constructing our future, Andrew? What, what, what is the number one resource you're, you're lacking right now? We have a, we have a number of needs. We need um, partners who can work with us both on the housing front um, as well as um, coming alongside and training and mentoring the women. Um, we also have needs for resources um, for um, overhead for the staff and for um, doing the um, acquisition and refurbishing of the homes. Um, But one of the things that we're we're really excited about is that um, while Constructing Our Future was conceived as as strictly as a reentry program that was doing restoration of houses, um, one of the things we're really excited about is we're being able to branch out into a number of other areas where we're also um, helping to educate the public and the General Assembly and, and talking to them about various issues that are important to individuals who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. Um, we've also been doing a fair amount of work in terms of um, developing a web app that will help people who are reentering society connect to the resources that they need and also to have connections with other people who have been through similar type situations to get their experience and their support and encouragement. Um, and the, the work inside the prison is ongoing where we're doing um, the, the public policy class continues and the women are very interested in um, thinking differently about criminal justice. And because of their unique perspectives, we're, interest, we're able to do some interesting research looking at, at corrections and public policy generally of interest to them. And so that's been a lot of fun. You know, one of the teachers say that one of their favorite things is when they see the light bulb go on in a student's eyes. For me, one of the most exciting things about the work that I do is to see women come into my classroom for the first time and they just have this look in their eyes that is, there's, there's no hope. There's no vision. Um, But as they get involved in the class, they get involved in constructing a future and they begin to see this is what's possible. 
This is what can can happen. This is the change that I can help bring about. And they get this excitement. They come in after that and they're excited and there's a light on in their eyes. And it's just, I love to see that. Um, so that's, that's, that's one of the, the, that's one of the things that we're doing that I'm really excited about. Do you think, Alexis, do you think, um, prisoners, you think felons, um, uh, you think they think about what they need when they get out? Is there any kind of education on what you're going to have to do? I mean, I know there's readiness to get, in, to get a job, mm-hmm. but being in an institution, like you said, is being institutionalized is different than being out in the public. I mean, is that tough to uh, help them see what they need in order to make that next step, or are they just anxious to get out? It can be. It can be tough. You know, we definitely do our best to talk about the challenges that are going to exist. But for some people, you know, until they run into that challenge, they maybe don't understand the gravity of it. Um, you know, we have a couple of creative ways where where we might offer that opportunity. We had a, a, a all staff training for reentry staff um, over the last three days. And what we've borrowed from the Bureau of Prisons is something called a reentry simulation. And it's essentially meant to simulate the first four weeks out of incarceration and it kind of puts the population you know we were training staff to facilitate it but we do it with our offender population generally as part of that pre-release course where we can Um, it simulates the challenges that are going to come up you're going to you know be sent to this office and this office you know may not you might not go with all the information that you thought you needed to and so the purpose of that type of an exercise is to show that frustration and stress is unfortunately realistically part of the process and so being aware of that and not letting it derail you from being staying on your path for reentry and your path for success is what's important and so you know the staff are very candid with them about you know not everyone that you encounter is going to be you know an a plus customer service person (laughs) not everyone you encounter has the attitude that they're there to help and you know you can't allow those people or those experiences to derail you completely and have you throw your hands up and kind of give up and so having those realistic conversations with them and at least making them aware we hope better prepares them for when they meet those obstacles um but there are definitely some folks who just you know they they don't believe it till they see it and that's hard to sit back and watch at times and see them struggle i've been through that reentry simulation um and you know i I did it after i've been involved in this work for several years but it was still amazing to me how how much it taught me and how much I made me feel. I mean, it was com- it was completely a feeling of they've completely stacked this against me to make mm-hmm. me fail. Um, and I think they, I mean, I, I think the simulation was stacked against me to make me fail. Um, yeah, it was frustrating. Imp- Put you in a right, pressure cooker. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I think that there's a sense in which for people who are getting out, there's a very real sense in which that's very accurate. Not that the outside system is intentionally stacked against them. Um, although I think there are some people who for better or worse, think these people should go back, shouldn't be in society, and so I'm going to make it harder for them. That's a, a minority, but I think there are some, and I'm not pointing any fingers, right? but I think there are some people who are like that. Oh, yeah. And and intentionally make it harder for people who are getting out. Yeah, uh, and I think, you know, that it, I would say it's probably a, an older, uh, there's a different way of young people maybe thinking about prisoners and inmates, and um, don't you think? I mean, is that is is that... I think that's a behavior that's taught and learned. So I think it could be people of any age. Mm-hmm. 
and and as a millennial who constantly gets tagged with their behavior being millennial esque, I try very hard not to <laughs> <laughs> age people based on behavior yeah. or thoughts. <laughs> so it, we, I mean, you can see that type of an attitude in any age group. Yeah, so. I've seen it in young people too. I don't think it's necessarily a young versus old thing. I think okay. it's how you're brought up. I mean, I've encountered people like you know. I don't think people. I don't think people like this can change. Um, I think once they're a criminal, they're always a criminal. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's, that's an a, unfortunate that's, thing. That's a pretty sad approach to mm-hmm. take. I mean, if if that were the case, we should just be shipping them off to Australia or something like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's what they used to do. They, they won't take them. Uh, right, they won't take them anymore. But but we don't have that option. Right. We don't have an they Australia. They have to, yes. We have to figure out a way Very important to help point. them to help Very them important to change. Point. 99.5% yep. are coming back. And we have to work it out. We have to make it such that they can return. I mean, we could we could discuss a dozen challenges um, for for people reading our society. We've talked about a lot of them today. Um, we could talk about all the laws and regulations. Indiana has 780 laws and regulations that restrict what someone with a felony record can and cannot do. We need to work on changing some of that. But the biggest thing is the social stigma. And you, Alexis, you said you think that some of that's changing, and I sure hope so. But I think that I mean, that's one of the things that we think a lot about, about how can we reduce that social stigma and make it such that there's not this second prison when they get out, that they're essentially still in prison. But how can we make it such that they can be maybe not welcomed back, but certainly tolerated back into society and given the opportunity to find a place to live and find jobs? Um, and I think one of the keys to that is just getting to know people who are coming out um, and seeing, I mean, we could, we could cite statistics, we can cite societal benefits, but the thing that's going to change hearts is to get to know some of these people are getting out and to realize these are people like me um, and they need, they need a little bit of grace. They need a little bit of, they need some chances. Um, they need some help. Um, but they're, I mean, but for the grace of God, we could be there, and we need to help them out. Just thinking the same thing. We have certainly talked uh, a lot, and we even got philosophical there for a second, about uh, reentry programs and just reentry into society in general. Uh, My guest today for uh, Connecting Counties has been... uh, Alexis Dean with the Indiana Department of Correction and Andrew Falk with Constructing Our Future, a reentry program. Uh, do uh, listen to this program again and again. On uh, You can get a podcast of it. You can listen to it online. I do appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. And uh, we'll see us. you next time. This has been Connecting Counties with your host, Gus Piercy, presented by Duke Energy. Energy offers these tips for understanding your bill. Check the number of days in your billing cycle. Most bills are for 30 days, but there are times when the billing cycle is shorter or longer. If there are more days in the bill, it could be higher. And if you have a smart meter, check online to see if a daily usage analysis tool is available. Smart meters collect usage information by the hour, so checking spikes throughout the month, by the day, and even the hour can show what appliances and behaviors are increasing your bill. Residential customer service specialists are available Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. by calling 1-800-521-2232.